I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's The Wonky Show. The Office for Students is to step up its work on harassment and sexual misconduct. We'll work out what's going on there. Uh, We've hit the R&D target, but was it an accident? And what happens next? And we'll assess the state of debate on campus. It's all coming up. And I think the conclusions are that that whilst there has been progress, it's been patchy and and it's too slow. So so, so we're, we're not seeing the impact that we would have expected. Our view then is that we signalled to the sector when we published the the statement of expertise. Welcome back to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. I'm your host, Jim Dickinson, and here to set out what this house believes, as usual, three cracking guests. Uh, in misty waterside Northampton, Sean Waring is Deputy Vice-Chancellor at the University of Northampton. Sean, your highlight of the week, please. Oh, a lovely email from a new mother who wanted us to thank two Northampton midwifery students, Lauren and Rhiannon, who looked after her and her new baby, and she said they were wonderful. Oh, fantastic news. And in Manchester this week, Nick Hillman is Director at the Higher Education Policy Institute. Nick, your highlight of the week, please. Uh, It was probably a visit on Tuesday to the University of Leicester, where I visited their brand new space research centre, which was just full of the most amazing kit and was really really exciting excellent stuff and in Derry this week James Coe is associate editor at Wonky James your highlight of the week please hello everyone my highlight of the week is that for the second week in a row my team won the local pub quiz oh well done thank you thank you thank you (laughs) what was the uh what was the what was the what was the what was the trickiest question James uh which is the football stadium which is half in Wales and half in England And answers to that are on the show notes. So, yes, we start this week with harassment and sexual misconduct. Nick, there have been developments. Well, there absolutely have been developments, but they've been a hell of a long time coming. Um, And what we've had this week is uh, an announcement about a consultation on a new condition of regulation from the Office for Students. Uh, And this is that the Statement of Expectations... Um, which was originally published well about 18 months ago and um, after work from Universities UK. And it was actually trailed as far back as 2019. Um, uh, It it, it was going to be, as I say, a condition of regulation, uh, consultation on that. And the statement is quite rightly and very importantly all about protecting students from sexual harassment, whether that's by uh, other students or by staff or by visitors to the university. Um, and I won't read out all seven points, but the sort of things in the statement of expectations are higher education institutions should embed their approach to preventing and responding to harassment and sexual misconduct across the whole of their organisation. Governors should ha- have a role by ensuring their provider's approach to harassment and sexual misconduct issues is adequate and effective. One more, um, HEI should have a fair, clear and accessible approach 
to taking action uh, in response to reports about um, sexual misconduct and harassment. So it's actually quite a short uh, statement from the Office for Students, unlike lots of other their lots of their other documents. And I think it's a I think it really represents a huge triumph for people who've been campaigning for this. People like Graham Towell at, at Durham, uh, Wonky itself, you, you, Jim, and others, your colleagues have been tracking this issue for a long time. And the NUS, of course, who did their landmark report. Was it, was it 12 years ago the hidden marks, uh, came out? Hidden marks. Yeah. Um, and, and the OFS are doing this because they think progress to date has been too slow. They'd, they'd been reluctant to make it a condition of registration to date. But they think progress has been too slow. And the other thing they've announced, which is really interesting and important, I think, because it will improve the evidence base, is a survey of the prevalence of harassment and sexual misconduct. These are not easy issues to survey people on. But obviously, if we get a better evidence base, Mm that would be very useful. Um, And these are issues students obviously care, all students care about, not only those Mm -hmm. who have been victims. I mean, we did a poll last year where we found more than half of students think you should have to take a sexual consent course uh, and pass it before you start university so so it's it's a significant moment in the higher for the higher education sector but it's been obviously overshadowed by the wider political environment Yes, let's um, on that on that stuff about the prevalence survey. Let's have a. We've got a little clip of uh, Susan Lapworth, who was at the Women and Equalities Committee yesterday. Uh, here we go. So we know that the crime survey for England and Wales, when it was last run, shows that full-time students in England and Wales are three times more likely than any other occupational group to experience sexual assault. And we know that the numbers are higher for for women than than for men in 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 that context. We think there's probably quite a small pool of students represented in that prevalence survey because it's looking at whole population. We've got some other evidence from from other surveys, so work that the NUS has done, work that campaign groups have done, for instance, revolt sexual assault. And, and of course, we've we've talked about everyone's invited, giving us a a feel for quite an alarming scale of of conduct and and incidents that, that, that would concern us. That those latter surveys that, that talk about higher education in particular give us a flavour for, for the impact on students with particular characteristics. So, so I've, I've referred to women being more affected than men. We can see that disabled women are more affected than, than women who aren't disabled. And we can see a greater impact on women from some ethnic groups than, than others. So, so you can start to see that pattern. Those surveys, though, I think aren't good enough for our purposes. They they are capturing people who are self-reporting, so, so, so not reliable in the way that a, a whole sector prevalence survey might be. And we think that absence of prevalence data is a real problem in, in, in higher education. We're not persuaded by the arguments that say you don't need prevalence data for higher education because we know it's a problem. We agree it's a problem, but we don't agree that the absence of prevalence data is okay because that's necessary to tell us who this is happening to, exactly as you've just described, and and the different kinds of students that it's happening to, but also who the perpetrators are, where it's happening, and when it's happening, so the context within this is taking place. So so, so I'm able to to tell you today that that we've begun work to design and deliver the first prevalence survey for higher education, and we think that's a really important step forward. We want to draw on the learning from other countries that have run higher education prevalence surveys and, and the research evidence and we think that will help universities to understand the patterns in their institution target their interventions and and then evaluate whether those interventions are working or not so we think that's a huge step forward and something that's now really important that we do 
Sean, the you know one of the interesting things uh, that uh, Susan has announced there is that the the OFS is going to end up with institution level data. Which, I mean, you know, I mean, she didn't say whether or not that would end up in a league table. Let's let's hope not, or maybe let's hope so. You know, there are, there are differences of opinion there, but I mean, the the level of granularity that is being proposed here is interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I'm I'm. In the position of nodding vigorously, um, which is not unusual when I'm listening to Nick talking, but is a bit less common when I'm listening to OFS announcements, but I am fully in agreement with this. Um, I, I know there's been a big improvement in reporting, particularly when we go to anonymous, anonymized reporting. And at Northampton, um, we've had a never okay project since 2019, um, which is a collaborative project, which has included the Students' Union um, and our campus police team and security and lots of other members of the university community um, that attempts to prevent and respond to unwanted behaviours in the, in the university community. Um, and support survivors of sexual violence. So that now includes bystander training and um, uh, we're making an optional sexual consent and sexual violence module compulsory from now on. We've just agreed to that. Um, we've got sexual violence liaison officers in reach uh, uh, in place and outreach to our local nighttime economy, which our student union's leading on. Um, so we've got a lot in place. And I guess the more we've put in place, the more visible the extent of sexual harassment and sexual violence has been to us. Um, and so my view on this is we still don't know. I, I completely agree with the prevalence survey. It seems to me that we don't know what toll sexual violence, sexual harassment takes on society because it's it's still not sufficiently visible. And we don't know enough about the women who drop all the people, I should say, not just women, um, but mainly women who drop out of education or underperform or withdraw from certain activities and spaces. And we, we don't know. And I think it has an impact right across society. So I, I 100% welcome this. But Sean, just before I go to change, I mean, the, the statement of expectations is about harassment and sexual misconduct. Now, obviously, Susan was speaking yesterday at the Women and Equalities Committee that was focusing on violence against women and girls. But, you know, that statement also covers other types of harassment. It, it's, it's unthinkable, isn't it, that they'll do a prevalence survey and only focus on sexual misconduct? Well... It is a bit surprising, given the OFS's sort of previous position on the race equality charter mark, um, that we've now got a focus on gender equality to this extent and this this specificity. So I would expect this to pick up um, issues of harassment around race as well. I was thinking about microaggressions, actually, that we experience in um, the community um, and the ability to have your... Um, your voice listened to. Um, I was thinking about issues of condescension, mansplaining, taking credit for other people's ideas, which goes throughout the community. But of course, once you get into microaggressions, that crosses um, many groups. And um, we were talking earlier, Jim, about um, r racial harassment, racial violence, and the importance of understanding that on our campuses too, and addressing and changing it. But James, this is where it potentially gets controversial for OFS, isn't it? Because, you know, with, you know, arguably, one of the things that's going on here in terms of controversy is there's a kind of hierarchy of kind of types of discrimination. It's, it's perhaps more straightforward for OFS to say it's going to focus on sexual misconduct. It's probably harder for OFS to say it's going to do a prevalence study on, say, I don't know, microaggressions, because there is political controversy about that concept. But, you know, as I say, it would be weird if OFS only focused on one aspect wouldn't it yeah completely and i mean i think there's two things there isn't there if the, we believe the ofs is to regulate the sector in order to deliver beneficial outcomes for students university society more generally whatever 
I can't see how you can look at one instances of harassment and assume that one student's interlocking characteristics won't, you know, come into that. So there's no way I just think you can't do it. And then I suppose, secondly, it just wouldn't give a representative picture of what's going on campuses. I think the two things I've got in the back of mind, Jim, one is what is the response to this when the prevalence survey comes out? So I remember working on a university project years and years and years ago about harassment in the nighttime economy. And the results of the project was reporting of harassment went up. And the feedback was, well, okay, so we've done all this project and now there's more harassment taking place. But what was actually happening was that there was better reporting mechanisms, there was more clarity about it. And my worry is if this becomes an issue about the culture wars rather than material difficulties that students are facing on campus, it gets lost. It doesn't get trapped with the seriousness it deserves. The second bit I'm really, really looking forward to is, I think it was during the select committee, Susan Lapworth said that in November, there'll be some indications of the better work universities have been doing and saying, look, there's been progress in this area and we wish to evaluate it. I don't know what that looks like yet, and I've certainly not seen it. So I think that'd be really, really interesting on where the basis prevalent survey and other work is coming from. Nick, one of the things I thought was interesting is that uh, Susan echoed John Blake's on uh, evaluation. So one of the things that she said was, you know, we're going to be asking universities when they're preventing sexual violence or when they're tackling it to demonstrate that their approaches work. Now, that will be interesting, won't it? Because lots of universities don't really have current baseline prevalence data in order to work out whether their initiatives are working. Yes, that's a that's a fair challenge, just like some of James's points about a survey and how you deliver a survey fairly and then understand the results correctly uh, is a fair challenge, too. But look, we work in the higher education sector. And if there's one part of UK life that should not be scared of difficult questions around evaluation, it's us because, you know, the academics working in their own specialisms across the board set themselves very high bars for for the quality of evidence they use. And when we are talking about ourselves as institutions and the role that we play as a sector in UK life, we should set ourselves a similarly high bar. Um, I wondered, though, Jim, if I could ask one other question, particularly of Sean, who's obviously rooted at a very senior level in an institution dealing with these things day out, day in, day out. And one of the things I just have a, a little question mark in my head about is the Office for Students has so many priorities. And this one has now moved up the priority list, quite rightly. I am not doubting that for a second. But I just wonder, you know, there is a sense where when everything's a priority, nothing's a priority. Mm. And and I just wonder whether something else should have moved down the priority list (laughs) and been displaced by this one. Because otherwise, otherwise (laughs) institutions are being expected to do so much constantly. Mm. And will we deliver the way we're being expected to deliver? I think that is often true. I actually think this runs through everything. So I don't see it as in conflict with other priorities. I think this is about our mission, accessibility to education, um, mental health. It, it crosses so many other agendas. Um, we've talked about it crossing into intersectionality as well. Obviously, it supports students from, um, it supports students with protected characteristics. Um, so, I don't see it as being in conflict or taking resource from other areas. Um, but I, th- I think you're right that the OFS has stretched itself very thin. And it's also a little bit surprising that um, when it sets the agenda of what's in on the table and what's off the table, and it's not always easy to see um, why it prioritises things that it does. Um, but but um, I don't think it changes our responsibility for addressing this issue, um, which I strongly feel should be at the top of the agenda. 
And, and James, again, one of the things that I think is really interesting here is once this is up and running, when a student or a group of students finds themselves a victim of, um, you know, harassment or sexual misconduct, or indeed, you know, c- comes across kind of problematic procedures that they don't like, if OFS hasn't previously taken action and looked at their procedures and so on, there's, there is this sense that we'll end up, won't we, with why didn't OFS act? And that is a yep. that will be a new space for the regulator. So, I mean, Jim, I suppose fundamental to all of this is that if we believe the Office for Students is taking a more risk-based approach to regulation and all of that looks like, what does a risk-based approach to issues of sexual harassment and sexual misconduct look like? And how do you apportion resources uh, equally or, you know, most appropriately? And I think there's two fundamental challenges here. Sean makes the point absolutely correctly that sexual misconduct, sexual harassment is a phenomenon which affects, you know, all students, whether directly as part of their student experience with faith in the institution, reporting mechanisms, all of, sort of those areas. But undoubtedly, there are groups of students who are more at risk or are more likely to be victims of these phenomenon. So how does the OFS, or less likely to report, or feel more let down by reporting mechanisms where they are in place? So how does the OFS balance what is a general obligation to ensure universities are transparent, reporting correctly, feeding back, you know, support their students, versus that more sort of intervention approach of acknowledging that certain groups of students are more likely to be victims of sexual harassment and sexual misconduct? I think it's a real, real challenge for the regulator. And you ask them to take a, you know, a real sort of difficult moral, cultural intervention stance that, you know, is a new new territory for them, I think, in some ways. Yes, and, and, and actually, Nick, can I, you know, one of the things I've said um, about, for example, the B conditions is there's a danger that a risk-based approach from OFS focuses on large institutions because there are more students at risk. You know, that makes sense. But one of the things that I've written about before is, you know, sexual misconduct and putting your head above the parapet to make a complaint must be really difficult in a small and specialist institution, you know, drama, drama schools and so on. So what on earth does OFS do on that kind of risk-based approach to make sure that, uh, you know, the right institutions are targeted? Well, I look, I don't have a good answer to that, but I would say it's difficult actually in any institution um, it's always difficult to flag these things. And if one thing that comes out of what the OFS is doing is that it becomes a little bit easier for these things to be discussed, mm-hmm. reported, investigated, considered at a governor level as well as a manager level, then that's all to the good. And I, of course, because the survey hasn't happened yet, the prevalence survey hasn't happened yet, we're not absolutely certain uh, whether the 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 the, um, the pattern of this sort of behaviour is uh, significantly different in a smaller specialist than a, than a mm. very large institution. One of the things that's going to be a real challenge here is if we think there's going to be a benefit to the overall community of reporting, we have to make sure that we don't penalise institutions for reporting. Um, and that's going to be a real challenge from that league table perspective. Of course, we want to, you know, I'm, I'm a, a mum of a, a a young woman who's uh, at university now. I want her to be safe. I want that university to look at um, the prevalence and address it. But what I wouldn't want is any disincentive that would prevent them doing that. And we have to be really careful about the visibility of this data and the way that it's used because of that that makes lots of sense so uh great uh lots of coverage about this um over the past couple of years but also on on this week's developments on the site now let's see who's been blogging for us this week hi i'm chantelle carpenter a policy analyst at the russell group and this week on wonky i've been blogging about universities role in supporting student mental health 
COVID, lockdowns, and now the cost of living crisis, it's no surprise that more students are asking for help with their mental health. In light of this, Russell Group Universities are continuing to increase spending to support student well-being, and many of our members have continued provision put in place during COVID. But there are difficult questions for the sector, and there are limits to the services universities can offer. Whilst institutions across the UK are working tirelessly and in partnership with local health services to provide the right support for their students, it is still no substitute for vital and long-term NHS treatment. University interventions cannot solve long-term problems like increased waiting lists for NHS treatment. A renewed government focus on student mental health is right, and everyone working within the university mental health teams is working towards the same goal of ensuring every student has the right tools and support to thrive and succeed. We just can't do it all alone. So now, next up, crack the champers. We've hit the R&D target, but Sean, it was an accident. <laughs> That's right. The news story here is that the government um, famously pledged to spend 2.4% of GDP on research and development. And that seemed to be a big increase that would allow lots of exciting activity and a chunk would flow into universities, uh, primarily STEM research. And now the goalposts have moved and it's being announced we've already met the 2.4 target 2.4% target by a sleight of hand at the Office for National Statistics. And this is disappointing for anyone who thought the UK would increase its innovation and growth due to investment in this area. Um, it's infuriating for anybody who thinks st- statistics should be integrity, should have integrity and not be fiddled with for political reasons. And it's really scary for people who see it as politicians rewriting history to cover their backs. Um, <laughs> so um, it is a surprisingly interesting story for what looks like quite a small statistic. Nick, this um, used to happen to me as a child, right? So, so I, I would, you know, I would be writing a, an essay when I was doing my A levels, and you know, I'd be I'd be trying to make fifteen hundred words, and I'd really struggle, and then I'd get started, and then suddenly I'd be on seventeen hundred and fifty, and I'd be like, "That's it, feet up." <laughs> well, I, I I used to work before I worked in higher education policy and social security policy, and there were very similar debates over child poverty targets and whether uh, we'd made big inroads into child poverty or not, simply on the basis of how you uh, calculate. It and the methodology used. Um, look, I've always been sceptical uh, that we would ever reach 2.4%. So I find myself in a slightly odd position because I'm suddenly told we have hit 2.4%. It doesn't sort of feel out there in the real world when you talk to researchers and institutions that um, you know they are awash with research cash in the way that uh, 2.4% might suggest they uh, are. Um, of course, the ONS is independent of government. Uh, we don't know what conversations have gone on uh, behind the scenes. Um, but some people, and of course, some people have responded to it by saying, well, it's fine. It, it, in a way, it's a positive. Now let's just ask for 3% or 5% or something like that. And there was a Conservative Party manifesto commitment in 2017 Correct. to have a 3% target, not a 2.4% target. But I, I actually agree with Sean. I think this makes our um, position much harder in lobbying terms as the big uh, fiscal event approaches. Um, some people have been happy that when the Treasury ministers were challenged on this by George Freeman in the House of Commons the other day, they said, don't worry, we, we still stick to all our commitments. But at this moment in time, just before a big fiscal event, none of those promises mean anything because at a big fiscal event, it's all up in the air again. And that's, I suspect, why David Davis, the experienced Conservative MP, has been tweeting that that the R&D budget is still in the headlights of the Treasury and could be uh, snaffled away, at least in part. Yes, let's have a quick listen to that exchange in the Commons. George Freeman, <laughs> the Chancellor and his team for 
making the Treasury a growth department. And would they agree with me that innovation-led growth is particularly important if we want to drive up productivity, competitiveness and inward investment, that our high-growth sectors like space, agri-tech and fusion have a big role to play? And would the Minister specifically reassure those in the R&D community that he won't be tempted to reduce the allocation for Horizon or for science and research in the CSR in order to reassure the markets? Mr. Speaker, very few members of this House can look back on a track record of commitment to research and development as significant as my honourable friend, both as a minister and as backbencher. And so I am happy to confirm to him that we will abide by the Spending Review 2021 decision that includes funding for core Innovate UK programmes, for Association of Horizon Europe and for ARIA. James, now, uh, you know, is it yeah. tar- target or a limit? <laughs> <laughs> Sir... Jim, I think the place we have to start from, if you'll indulge me for a moment, is understanding how have we got to 2.4%. Because it speaks directly to Nick's point of why don't universities feel awash with cash. So the overall research investment is estimated in two ways. One is that HMRC have a set of statistics where they take the amount of R&D tax relief claims and then you can get an implied figure of overall research. The second by the ONS, which has led to the revision, is they take a sample of 40,000 businesses from the um, annual business survey. That then goes into the business enterprise research and development survey and that gives you a figure. What ONS has been doing because of the way of reporting is inadvertently missing out lots of smaller organisations, and therefore you have more research investment. So, you know, in, in, a, in a matter of a pen stroke with doing surveys more effectively, we've got to 2.4%. There's, there's three really, really, really big things here, right? So at the uh, Select Committee, the new science minister, Nusrat Ghani, said that this should be a starting point, which I think is really, really encouraging, and we should think about what does the future look like. Yes, Just... pa- pa- pause right there, James. Let's have a, let's have a listen to that. One of the things uh, that he did was to achieve a settlement uh, of £20 billion a year for the, the research and development, public research and development uh, budget by 2024-5, uh, and 22 billion for the following year. Does that remain the case? Are those um, budgets, uh, do they remain commitments? Absolutely. And I believe, Chairman, that you even asked the Chancellor on the floor of the House a few weeks ago whether the commitment to 20 billion and 22 billion remain. And that commitment was made um, then. And also yesterday, my, uh, my previous, uh, the previous Minister for Science, George Freeman asked a very similar question and the commitment was made again by Treasury ministers. I think we have the exact words somewhere that were stated, but so it continues to remain the case. The second, and, you know, as sort of hinted down in the clip, was um, that, you know, there is now a serious debate about what comes next. And I think there's probably, there's two challenges here, right? There's actually no more activity taking place. We should be fundamentally clear that this 2.4% is not new activity. It's just been measured differently. So all the challenges about leveling up, size of research economy, research-led economy, global Britain, whatever, whatever, still exists and how do you respond to it? And also, as Nick says, then there's this enormous fiscal event on the horizon. And do as a sector, we say, actually, we want 3%, we want 5%, we want to be like Korea, Denmark, Belgium, Israel, whoever, whoever. 
I actually think the bigger challenge is with a trust government who's interested in growth for growth's sake without the distribution elements, what is the point of research? How does it fuel the economy? How do you get past 2.4% through the role of universities? Because it is still the case, most of the research economy happens outside of the walls of our institutions. I think the government's got a real challenge at the minute prioritising investment, given the current um, state of our economy. Um, and I was listening to a report that we've got kids at school from households where income is under £8,000 a year who are not eligible for free school meals. It's a threshold, £7,000 a year per, per household. So these have got families who are making packed lunches for kids and trying to feed them and heat their homes on less than 10k a year. So that's unimaginable. And if I could put money into anything right now, it would be that. But we've got to invest in the future of this country and our young people and anyone who contributes to innovation discovery. So it's an incredibly short view, short-term view not to continue to invest in research and development. Um, and obviously this government might not be um, you know, picking up the long-term bill for not, in, not investing in the future of our economy and our universities and scientific advancements, creativity and culture. Um, but the rest of us will be picking up that bill later on in our lives. And I wonder if part of that Shan, is, you know, have we effectively made the arguments of the sector of how research supports growth? You know, we can understand it's good and it's about pushing the frontiers of knowledge and it's good for humanity. But have we yet closed the deal on actually research grows the economy, which allows you to do more things like distribute wealth to people who need it, you know, an awful lot? But actually, Nick, this is a good question for you. So, um, you know, clearly <clears throat> the, the, the push for growth, it, it comes from a particular kind of ideological wing of the broad coalition that is the Conservative Party. Now, you know, is, does that kind of particular bit of the Conservative Party that is currently kind of has the ideological flag up, you know, is, is that an argument that will work with, with that group of people? So the, the pro-growth coalition, I guess you're talking about, um, sometimes feels a little bit smaller than the anti-growth coalition. Um, well, yes, but it has to be supplemented. So you need all those numbers that James is talking about, return on investment numbers. They speak uh, volumes, but they're not the only thing that matters. You also need to show how research is curing that horrible disease your grandmother died from or changing the life of the community in which you live. And one reason why I continue to be very, very worried about this whole area of research spending, despite the at a surface level good news of us hitting the 2.4% target, is first of all, you know, the ministerial post for science and research was left empty throughout the entire summer at a crucial moment in the horizon negotiations. And that tells you something. Okay, it was a different prime minister over the summer, but it tells you something about the priority that science and research has on the one hand, while they're also on the other hand saying they want the UK to be a science superpower. Um, and the second, the second thing I'd just flag is that I think normally in our sector, we're deeply sceptical of political promises. We, ne we don't believe them. We almost don't believe any political promises. But when politicians stand up and say we're going to spend 2.4% on GDP or of, of GDP on R&D or 3%, we sort of take them at face value. And I, I find that odd. Um, and, and <laughs> you know, I think we should um, put the same scrutiny on those promises as we do on other government promises. Because as, as we've shown on the HEPI website, some really interesting work by a Portuguese academic um, he, he has looked at all these sorts of R&D targets around the developed world, and he says they're nearly always missed, and they're very often missed by a country mile. 
So we need to, you know, we need to take them always with a dose of salt. Well, what, they, what they need to do is fiddle with their stats now. Um, uh, great stuff. So lot, again, lots more coverage on the site about all of this. Uh, pop to wonky.com and have a look. Now, every week on the show, we dive deep into the sector's past to look at how things were and how things came to be with academic registrar and sector historian Mike Ratcliffe. Here's the hidden history of HE. One of the things I think makes history of higher education interesting is the the amount of continuity and the amount of change that we see. So one of the things I really enjoy is looking at old regulations of how we looked after students. Um, sometimes that's quite useful because you get really good ideas of how you regulate students now in the in the present. But I think sometimes it just shows us that we're still dealing with some of the same challenges. So my favourite set of these regulations is the Statutes of the Collegium Sapienti at Freiburg University, which were written in 1497. And they are beautiful. They are illustrated, which I think is a great idea. We should run that out across um, universities anyway. But they cover the whole of student life. They were written by a bishop who'd been working with the university for a long time. He understood what students got up to, uh, and he set out a complete set of rules. So it has everything you could possibly want to run a proper university so it's got rules about how you uh, welcome a student to the university how you make a list of the furnishings in their room so it gets an inventory and so that they're clear that they've got to account for everything that's in the rooms um, there's a system for allocating the rooms it's done by lottery so no one can have the good rooms um, on favoritism uh, and they're quite clear rules about what time you have to go to bed and that there's study time everyone should be quiet uh, you have to clean your room once a week there's a great set of rules for how you have to make your bed immediately after you've risen in the morning. Uh, and then you get into the excitement, which is the penalty system. So the regulation says failure to comply as a result of laziness when noticed during the weekly inspection and reported to the president shall be punished by the removal of wine. If this should happen frequently, the scholar in question shall be deprived of his bed. Now, the great thing about all of these regulations is basically the tariff system is how much wine you have removed for the different infringements you go through. Now, we have to remember that obviously um, wine was a different kind of commodity. It was you know, a drinkable uh, uh, drink. It wasn't quite the same as uh, you know, having your, your, uh, your vodka-based um, uh, confection taken away from you by the university, but that's how it works. You go through uh, and you you get all these punishments. So there's a whole bunch of things that these people are are, are not allowed to do. They're they're kind of clerks in lay orders. There, so they're kind of semi-religious, but it's very clear there's lots of things they shouldn't be getting on to. So uh, there's to be no loose frivolous frivolous uh, or obscene song, no blasphemy, and no kinds of boasting. Um, dice, cards, and sticks for casting lots on all games of chance are forbidden. Disregard of this rule should be punished with the loss of wine for a week. Chess, however, is allowed. And it goes on. So there are these lovely things. So, uh, again, one of the things we do is we, we often contrast ourselves with uh, people in the US. So there's a lot of very clear rules about no arms allowed. So you have to hand your sword into the president when you arrive at the college. Uh, if you need it back, you can go and get it when you, you're, you know, if you're going outside town, uh, but you're not allowed to keep it in, in the hall. And a very clear rules about no fighting in the in the college and, and what you do with it and as you go through the sets of regulations each has this wonderful little illustration showing you exactly what's going on so there's every everything is is beautifully set out and laid down but it's a pocket set of rules and most of it uh, probably apart from the swords is entirely applicable to the modern university it's that time of the year your vacation is coming up 
You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Now, finally this week, we've been assessing the state of debate on campus. James, what have we learned? Um, you know, some things that we didn't know, some stuff that we did. Um, but the usual. So to start off, Jim, Civitas have a report out. Civitas, you remember, are the opaquely funded think tank operating outside of Tufton Street, who are, you know, a political wing of the culture wars when it comes to this type of debate. And they have scoured university websites between March and May and found in their categorizing sort of methodology, there are some universities who are, um, in their view, not upholding values of freedom of speech as much as they could do. Um, their research found that 140 universities who they looked between only 79 are free speech societies. You know, there are some typical free speech controversies. I think I would put this report in the category of adding more heat than light. However, on the other hand, yesterday, and I was reading this at midnight, uh, HEPI published their research into university uh, debating unions or what they call also quite no platforming where students decide not to invite otherwise suitable speakers to an event because of their reviews, uh, because of their views, rather. This is different to outright no platforming. And I think Nick has touched on an interesting phenomena that deserves additional attention. So we have one report out in the world which is adding heat to a debate which is already on fire, and one which I think is adding some light into dark corners that are perhaps underexplored. Nick, give us a sense of uh, what, uh, what 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 surprised because because it, it's 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 your um, intern program, isn't it? For the fantastic intern program, people don't know about inter- a happy uh, work where it gets some interns in to kind of look at a particular issue. Give give us a sense of what surprised you when you got the got the results from Josh. Yes, and some of our very best reports have been written by our interns because um, they're very close to the life of a student. And Josh is actually currently. Uh, just enrolled as a postgraduate at Oxford. And he must take the credit for the paper, not me. Uh, I think James gave it a very fair uh, assessment. It's very different to the Civitas work. Ours is about supporting, uh, about supporting students and societies to make sure there's a vibrant um, debate and, and civic life, if you like, on campus. Civitas is much more about kicking, kicking universities. Um, yeah. So, uh, and well, what we have found is that when you go, and it's based partly on a, a, a sort of de- research of the data, you know, we looked at what information's in the public domain, and then followed up with interviews of students that run debating societies. And what we found was um, there had been 
some really tricky cases, you know, like, for example, when the Israeli ambassador went to the LSE and some of the students that had helped organize that, even though it was very, you know, they had an independent chair that invited uh, students with a Palestinian background to be present, uh, that invited uh, the Palestinian ambassador to speak at a different occasion. Um, they were, those students uh, were on the receiving end of basically harassment uh, and it put them, and that has a chilling effect. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the debate, the second reading debate on the freedom of speech bill in the House of Lords was very interesting because there was a lot of talk about those OFS figures about how many uh, speaker engagements have actually been cancelled. Very, very few. You've written about that on Wonky as well. Um, but then there's this separate bunch of events that never really happen. They never quite get off the drawing board, even though people want them to get off the drawing board. And, you know, who knows? Tony Blair might have turned down an invitation from Cardiff Politics Society. <laughs> Who knows? But, but had he accepted, what a wonderful opportunity for Cardiff uh, students to hear from a former, very successful in some respects, Prime Minister. And, and it's a shame that those sorts of events don't even get off the drawing board. And that's what we're trying to shine a spotlight on. Plus, if I could say one more thing, the reason we're doing this now, we're not jumping on a bandwagon, as, as some people have accused us of, Um the bill is about to go into committee in the House of Lords in, in a matter of days. It's at an absolutely crucial moment in the legislative process. And the legislation currently um, is a bit confusing. So, so when things have gone wrong, is someone meant to use their university complaints procedure? Mm-hmm. Are they meant to go to the independent adjudicator? Are they meant to go to the new OFS complaints procedure? Or are they meant to use the new tort through the courts? And so the other thing our paper does is try to shine a spotlight on ways in which the bill and the subsequent guidance from the OFS could be, uh, uh, you know, made to be as good as possible. Sean, one of the things that um, you know struck me when I was reading the report, and you, you know, I mean, you know, full disclosure, I've been, I've been, I've been pretty unforgiving on the site about it. Is one of the things that strikes me is it tells a tale of students being quite worried about being judged by other students, and to some extent, that being kind of driven by you know decentralised accountability through social media. You know, you wake up at three in the morning and someone has Instagrammed something quite nasty to you, and 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 it worries me. I think that we, if we, if we frame that as being something in the control. Of universities or students unions or indeed if we frame that as a kind of no platforming rather than trying to interrogate what's going on with social media we miss the trick Mm. don't we yeah i think that's right i think there's a a kind of micro view of this which is about you know who gets to speak at universities and then there's a macro view about how society changes how these debates drive change in society and for that i think i'd like to see leadership from the government from the media maybe um, and from the ofs about how we we bring forward um divergent voices and start to resolve some of the tensions that generates um you know, areas where we've got conflict because, you know, one set of rights conflicts with another. And I think actually that is the job of universities, of course. It's also the job of the media. So some of these debates, um, I think, are, are, although it's very uncomfortable to be in them, and as a university with, you know, the freedom of information requests and things, it's very uncomfortable to be in that position. But actually, I think we could see this as, as generative of social transition. This is what social transition looks like. Um, it's not safe. It's not comfortable. Uh, it includes con- conflict. So I think from a macro perspective, we would expect to see these things happening. Um, I will say I was in my school debating society and I would not at all hold that up as a pinnacle of free speech. Um, and I wasn't in my university debating society because that was the Oxford Union. And I, I don't think I'd have gone near that. And uh, I don't think that's actually generated much help in the, in the way of free speech either. But 
I do think maybe what we need to think more about is listening rather than speaking. So how much we listen to minority voices and how much we hear them and how we hear unpopular opinions and how we engage with them. Yes, James. I mean, one of the things I'm fascinated by here is um, if we if we accept at face value the idea that um, students that are organising events perhaps are more nervous about, you know, saying that they've invited someone controversial and we accept at face value that we ought to find ways to kind of give them confidence or, you know, find ways to protect them. What would that... What, what, what would we do? You know that kind of proactive yeah. aspect of the proposed duty. What even? What would it be? I mean, there's, so there's there's bits I struggle with this, Jim. So if you think what other space exists in society where there's hundreds of people organising thousands of events across a year, where people are free to come along or not, depending on their you know relationship to their student union. No wonder there is so much scrutiny because it is literally the place where this happens at such a scale. So I'm never convinced as the extent to which is this a university phenomena or is this a phenomena because there's lots of people doing this activity and therefore gets lots of attention. So that sort of support mechanism becomes hard to imagine because then the question becomes how do you support more um, collegiate debate across society more generally? And again, I think there's a couple of interesting bits when you look across these two reports. So, Nick, in your report, you make the point about um, coding the different types of speakers have taken place. Are they left-wing, neutral or right-wing? And it says, you know, there is a left-wing leaning, but actually the majority of speakers are classed as being neutral in your coding. So is it in fact the case that despite students being more left-wing generally, as the research suggests, they're moderating their views towards a more neutral standpoint in order to accommodate debate? I think the second thing which is really tricky to my mind, Jim, is some of the issues are really, really clear. So I think Nick's point about um, this quiet, no platforming is not a phenomenon I necessarily thought about as much. Really, really interesting. I think the OFS uh, ideas for regulation, ease, removing burden, bureaucracy, also really, really uh, interesting. I think where people tend to get their backs up and university can make a mistake in not dealing with this issue as a tactic or sort of importantly is there are then other things thrown in which feels quite riling. So in the Civitas report, for example, you see the introduction about what's ostensibly freedom of speech in universities. The two examples which are used to say there is a chilling of freedom of speech generally is the attempted assassination of Salman Rushdie and the teacher in Batley who's gone into hiding. Now, those two things are horrendous, but they have nothing to do with universities. And then similarly, when you read through um, the HEPI report, loads of loads of really, really interesting work I suspect where universities get their backs up is the work at the start, which talks about the award of honorary degrees and how some people have chosen not to do them, referencing uh, Eric Kaufman and you know, some of his work, talking about Judy Bindle and Peter Hitchens, etc., which I think are slightly different phenomena and shouldn't be tread together. And that's where it starts to rile people up, I think. Yes. I mean, Nick, it, you know, I mean, it, it's genuinely difficult, isn't it, to try to get to a place where it's possible to kind of evaluate the phenomenon. I mean, if you go back to the stuff we were talking about right at the start of the podcast, that stuff about prevalence, if, if, the, if the kind of theme here is that one of the things about looking at no platforming prevalence is there's a kind of sinister secret type of no platforming, we'll never get to the truth, will we? Uh, no, people in the sector are, are smarter than you give them credit for. Um, I, I mean, I, let me just make a couple of points. First of all, don't muddle up our report with the Civitas report. I, I don't um, like to kick other think tanks, but 
Um, they've kicked us. I mean, the Civitas report attacks us for another report that we published by a student on decolonizing the curriculum. So, you know, yeah. the, what HEPI does and what Civitas do are very, are very different. Um, the, the second point uh, I would make is another attack that's been made of the report is, well, it's only about debating societies. Look, debating societies are in the title of the report. Do not attack a report that said, here's a report about debating societies for only being about debating societies, because that is what the report is about. You know, it, it's not meant to be covering every <laughs> single thing that goes on on university campus you know read some of our other stuff on free speech issues if you want to want to see that so so i don't know and i think james makes an interesting point about how many speakers are neutral another point we make in the report by the way is some of the speakers that are coded left-wing we make it clear they weren't necessarily speaking about politics when they got onto campus um and and so therefore that's an important point too but the reason i think there's a lot of nonsense talked about this you know anybody looking in from the outside would probably think the government's on one side and universities and students unions are on the other I, I see it a little bit differently I think if we can get the legislation that's currently before parliament into as good a place as possible then it will actually provide backbone to students who want to put on interesting events to university managers that want to encourage that to happen um, and hopefully uh, you know we won't have the, the some of the really difficult or it'll be harder to have some of the really difficult situations that we have seen in recent years because it'll be much clearer how people are meant to behave uh, uh, uh in the organization of these events and the response to these events and when there are problems you know what they're meant to do about it but sean in many ways this is the precise problem isn't it and to be fair to nick you know this this is you know this is very very clear in the report if you are a student union that doesn't have a debating society, that doesn't have many external speakers, and you're vaguely looking at this, it's kind of in your consciousness, you know, you're flicking through social media and you know this controversy is going on, in what world would you decide, right, strategically, next year, we're going to really go for encouraging a debating society and encouraging external speakers? You just wouldn't, would you, because of the controversy and, the and you know, all the arguments collapse in on themselves. Yes, that is a type of kind of self-censorship, but I'm not sure we could blame people. Yeah, certainly it's not, it's not an attractive proposition, is it? It's not incentivised. Um, but I think we're underestimating, um, you know, s- s- students' hunger for um, information and debate and and honestly free speech people will find a way through this they will find other ways of doing this you know student unions have a high agency um and they navigate worse than this i think but jim i want to ask you a question given the very strong opinions you've expressed on wonky today about reports like ours which is do you genuinely think quiet no platforming is just something we just shouldn't worry about at all because i think it does limit Mm. the university and the student experience no no no, I, i absolutely think we've got to worry very very hard about both in terms of politicians universities and students decentralized social media judgment So when I talk to student officers about even expressing a view on higher education policy, they say they don't want to put their head above the parapet because someone might shout at them on social media. That is the vanishing point for me. And, and, And actually framing a particular version of that as quiet, no platforming, I think is unhelpful. But trying to understand the way in which social media is causing people to be very careful about what they do and say in public 
should worry us. And and that's a slightly different phenomena. And my, my worry about that is that weirdly, now that Michelle Donnellan is over in uh, DCMS, is that she's preparing to dismantle the few protections that were proposed for adults in terms of pylons and bullying on social media. Ironically, that will cause students and young people that are over 18 to be even less likely to give their views out, I think. That's what that's that's my view. Okay, well, well, look, the, the job of a think tank is to make people think. So we don't expect people to agree necessarily with the report we put out today, but we do hope it will make people think and have these sorts of conversations and richer conversations in Parliament as well. So that's about it for this week. Remember to dig deeper into anything we've discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes on wonky.com. Remember, you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show on Acast, Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts or wherever else you listen. And to keep you and where you work ahead of everything going on in UKHE, do pop over to the website to find out more about our subscriptions. So thanks very much to Sean, Nick, James, Mike, everyone at Team Wonky that helps make the show happen. And until next week, stay wonky. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.